Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Searching the Sacred. Lisa, Steph, and Jason with you. And we are in the midst of talking about daughters of the Hebrew scriptures, looking at women of the Old Testament. And we are going to dive into the story of Deborah, the judge. Uh, from Judges chapter 4. But before we get to Deborah, we want to set up the story by reading verses 1 through 3 of Judges chapter 4. So Lisa, take it away. This is out of the New King James Version translation. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dealt in Harosheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Okay. Happy. It's a Monday here as we're recording. So I'm like, happy Monday. Let's talk about being oppressed for 20 years by chariots. Um, But we're reading this context because this sets up the book of Judges a little bit. And one of the things that keeps happening in the book of Judges, and I can't help but think in the book of Judges, I used to be a children's pastor. And back in the day, somebody had made a video that summarized um, different books of the Bible, like four kids, and it was a play and it was, it was really well done. And, but the book of Judges was summarized by like them on stage running with swords saying, we believe in the Lord, we'll fight for everything <laughs> that the Lord says. And then an enemy rises up and they're afraid and they like run away. And it had this whole, like the, just the whole book of Judges was like running towards and running away and running towards and running away over and over and over again. So I always think of that when I hear statements like this in the book of Judges. It's interesting because what I thought about were um some of the lifers that i spend time with who have been incarcerated for 20 years Mm. they would be able to tell you what it's like to be oppressed for 20 years Mm -hmm. and having heard their stories like that's no small that is actually no small statement Mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like it like the bible has such broad numbers like 400 years like there's so many years but like 20 years is a life sentence. Okay. 20 years is a life sentence. That is also helpful in the book of Judges to humanize this because it will be told, like it can be summarized in that play like I watched. But when it does that, sometimes we forget that these are actual humans and that 20 years is a lifetime. And so it's not like it's told as a brushstroke because it's fast, but this would not feel fast if you're one of the people living under Sisera's oppression for 20 years. Well, and it's interesting that it's 22 because 
normally we hear 40 and we think generationally, whereas this is only 20. So it's like half a generation of, of time as opposed to like the fullness of a generation. And so you kind of, I kind of wonder like, okay, what, what's going on there? Because sometimes in judges you have like a full generation and they've like left the Lords and then they, then people are crying out for the Lord and it's like, okay, a new generation is like been raised up in this and they're like enough of it. We need help. And so you have this kind of like generational difference of like how they view like their worldview. Whereas this is like, we're like mid generation. So it's an interesting, like, you know, spot because the same generation that left the Lord is also seemingly the same generation calling out for the Lord, which is not always what we see. Mm-hmm. Which maybe that begs the like the the need to like back up and be like, as Steph mentioned, typically what happens in the book of Judges is the people do something wrong, then there's an oppressor that comes. And then usually a generation later, they cry out for uh, salvation and then God raises up a judge and then that judge comes and fights on their behalf or raises up an army, pushes back and then establishes a time of rest or a time of peace in the land. And then they end up doing it again. And it's this cycle that we see over and over and over. Um, and and here we are seeing it again with um, after Ehud, we see it with Deborah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can like bring that forward to say like how how is that the human condition of like when things are going well it's easy to forget and when things are hard it pushes us to cry out and how that cycle is true inside of our own lives it's also true societally or in the church or like that 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 rhythm of things are going well i forget things get hard i cry out it happens what do we do with that how do, is there ways to change that cycle is that cycle just the way it is well, and to can look at this contextually in the Hebrew scriptures, this isn't like in the historical section because there isn't a historical section. It, this book is found in the prophets. And so what is it prophetically telling us about what it means to be human or God's interaction with humanity? What's the re, what's the what's the reality, the truth? And then what's the hope? Right. And so at some level, you we can ask a lot of different questions, not just what were the facts here, but what what's the learning that's supposed to take place? What's God warning us about? What's God enlightening us into um, as we think about our own future? And so I think bringing it to our time is really important because that's the whole point of the prophetic section of the Bible is to like, is to help us understand the realities of what it means to be human and interact with God and what God is up to in the world. So yeah, I think that's a really important thing that you're doing stuff is bringing us to the rea- to our time. It's also probably good to have a little warning label of when we are reading any narratives in scripture that are taking place while the people are landed. It is very difficult to bring those forward well. 
Um, and it's often been a source of pain and oppression in the way that it's brought forward uh, because of ways that like um, when the people are landed in the land, there tends to be more battles. Um, there tends to be more like God getting mad and taking away provision. And then the people crying out and God bringing provision back. And all of that gets very tricky to interpret well, to interpret with kindness, to interpret interpret with actual truth versus like, how do people at that time period tell their story and how do we look back on their story? Um, because that can be pulled forward in a way that is more universal than it's being written to, to intend. Um, so one thing that's always worth noting is that in the context of people having a land under the banner of this God and this God's way of being in the world that was shared with the people in the wilderness, there's a different responsibility to live in that land according to the way that God has asked them to live in that land. God's love is not conditional, but the gift of the land is framed as conditional. Because your job in this land is to show people who I am. So if you turn away to the point where you are giving people a false picture of the kind of God I am, I can't allow that to continue. The domino effects of that are too big if I'm God. And so that that becomes a part of that framing of blessing and struggle. And that's still, even as I say that, I, I get a little bit like, eh. <laughs> Like, like that can, it, it's still hard. It's still a wrestle, but it's a different kind of wrestle than just the, like, I displeased God. And so God cursed me. It's a little more complex of like, as a people who are called to live as a society with peace and love and wholeness, when they are become oppressors, how does God respond? Um, is tricky to talk about well, because also God sometimes seems pretty violent, but this story is going to end violently. So what do we do with that? And it also, it feels like it, like that's a tension and violence is very real in our world today. It's not like as if we don't experience violence <laughs> and there's, um, I think it's the thing that makes it the idea that we have to clean everything up and make everything end in this picture perfect way of making us feel like everything's okay is part of the problem with like not being willing to wrestle and sit with things and wonder and try to like think about it a little bit and we're um and it's not as if violence isn't happening in both testaments <laughs> mm -hmm. um so it, it's a dance wrestle that like it, if this is going to be clean it's probably not we're not doing it right. <laughs> right. That's well said. And so how do we leave space for the mess of that and to say, okay, like when we're thinking about the children of Israel being oppressed for 20 years, we can say as a people group, if they're oppressed for 20 years, some of the people being oppressed were probably the people in power who got themselves in, got the people into the mess that they're in. Some of the people were probably completely innocent of that mess when you're talking about a people group being oppressed. 
And they're going to then experience that oppression differently. The story is complex <laughs> and the, and the story of who's oppressing them is complex and why it's oppression or how that's being done. It's probably, it's not an equal experience of oppression, even as it's naming they were all oppressed. Lisa, you laughed like you were going to say something there. It's a hundred percent. Like you could, this is a peek into the criminal justice system. Yes, say more. <laughs> How everyone is there is different. Mm-hmm. And their experience of it is different. And it has to do with, like, there's a billion and one different factors um, from who a prosecuting attorney is to who a judge is to financial resources to race um, and innocent people. So it's, it is actually very, this is still happening as much as like, we're like, this is is a really old tie. This still happens. It's just in a community that we like to think of as exiled from us and that not part of our community. And the reality is, is that this is actually a part of us, Mm -hmm. whether we choose to see it or not. Which I think this story somewhat yeah, like you said, it, it gets at that because like all of Israel was caught up in this oppression. And yet, like Steph said, not all of Israel was the cause for this or did did the evil, but um, the ramifications are there. And um, yeah, I mean, I think this story speaks of a system gone wrong more than just like all these individuals went wrong individually it's Mm -hmm. no there was a there was a system that went wrong that had leaders that made bad choices but it the system it was all affected and it was oppressed Mm -hmm. um and the part of where the oppression perhaps also is what we can see going forward is the emphasis in verse three about what feel what they're crying out about is what that he had 900 chariots 900 iron chariots so the time period of the judges is roughly the beginning of the iron age and one of the places that one of the things swirling in who's the oppressor and who's in power is who has access to iron and how that changes your power. So they are being oppressed by a king who's got lots of iron. And so this is about power and it's about resources and it's about a more powerful place coming through with the resources to oppress a less powerful place. To which Lisa is once again nodding. <laughs> the story of power and wealth and oppression changes form but is timeless we don't see that at all in the nuclear age that we live in no that that who has access to particular resources affects who's in power and who's oppressed Mm -hmm. and who else gets to have access to those same resources down the road Mm -hmm. yeah we don't we don't moderate that at all here in america (laughs) So in 
at the end of verse three, we're then waiting, like the story's written really well too. Like the book of Judges is an interesting, it's sort of a compelling read. It's it's a violent read. Don't read it to your children. (laughs) 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 But it has good storytelling. So you're kind of waiting like, oh, they cried out again. Like, who is God going to send now? So God sent Ehud, God sent um, other judges along the way. And now we're going to see who the judges that God sends. So I want to send it to Lisa again to read the next section, unless you have something else to say first, Lisa, because you looked deep I, in there. Yeah. I'm going to say one more thing. It's really curious to notice your feelings or thoughts around when you read the statement that um, like all the children did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then how you feel about them crying out from being oppressed for 20 years. And like somehow like it, I could feel like this compassion for them, like, oh no, 20 years of oppression. Like, it wasn't hard to imagine them being sorry. It wasn't hard to imagine them being changed. It wasn't hard to imagine them deserving something different for a Deborah to walk on the scene. And that is not often given. I don't, I, Mm. it is rare to see it offered to folks who are incarcerated. Like the idea of allowing a person to change, to allow a person to heal to encourage healing, to encourage somebody like to want that. Um, is it anyway, I've just been a part of enough stuff to watch people try to ask for other people to see it and people refuse to see it. Mm. It's well, I would love to say something about that too, because it, it tends to be that thing of like, when it's us, we want it to be enough that we cry out. That feels good when it's us. Does it feel good when it's an other? That like for God, it is enough that they cried out. Crying out is something, but it's not a lot of things. It's They didn't, whatever punishment we think is necessary, whatever, like all it says is they cried out. When they cry out, that's enough for God to shift the trajectory. When it's somebody else, do we think that is enough to shift the trajectory? Or are we willing to see that it is a trajectory shift? Right. Give it the opportunity to be a trajectory shift. Yeah. Well, <laughs> was well, not expecting that this today. <laughs> there's not there's not a lot to unpack in those first three verses. <laughs> I'm glad we breezed right over them. <laughs> Just for the listeners to know, we almost didn't read those first three verses. We said, but we're like, oh, that's probably helpful context for the book of Judges. And so now it's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot in those verses that give us some context for how the book of Judges might apply to our modern world. Just a wee bit. If this is your first episode of Searching the Sacred, welcome. Welcome. (laughs) We do laugh sometimes. It's not always like, it's like real heavy right away. Okay. Are we ready to get to the fun stuff? We, I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of fun stuff no. in here. I'm super nervous about where it's going now. Well, the so. best thing was when you said, don't read this book to your kids. And then I was actually thinking, oh, but this is the best book to give to like, kind of like teenagers to get them excited to read their Bible because they just can't believe it's in the Bible after they've been given all the really nice stories of Jesus walking on water and all these other really cute things that the Bible also gives us. 
And then it's like, here, you, you think the Bible's cute? Like, read this. And then they're like, what is going on? And uh, yeah, so so maybe teenagers, but maybe not five-year-olds. Fair. Fair. <laughs> that was one of my, okay, back to the children's pastor days again. People would ask me like how to pick a good children's Bible. That was a very common question for a children's pastor to get. And I had a few criteria of like what to look for to see the quality of a children's Bible. One of them was, is the story of Samson in it? If so, do not buy that Bible. <laughs> because the story of Samson is the violent, bloody end of this book. It is not in any way, shape or form a children's story. If you think it's a children's story because he was strong and had long hair <laughs> and like was interesting that way. Like there's nothing that makes sense. Over a few important parts, <laughs> you're right. It probably shows a connection to toxic masculinity that you're trying to put your, into your children, as compared to like really understanding what why the story is being told the way it is. Because he's not even really a good guy; he's just a good enough guy for the moment. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. He's a good enough guy for the moment, and then the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> I feel like some people appreciate that. <laughs> and some won't. And, and so some once again, not. welcome to Searching the Sacred. Oh my gracious. Okay. So we also made the decision we're gonna we're going a little bit of um little rogue um in terms of how we're reading the scriptures. So the next little part, I'm actually reading from a book um called Daughters of Miriam, Women Prophets in Ancient Israel. And it's written by the Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who if you spend time with me, for sure, you'll hear me quote this woman because she is a powerhouse. Um, she's incredibly smart. So she's done some translation work. And so I'm going to read from her translation in the book. So I'm going to do like verses four to, did we say nine? Yeah. Okay. Um, Devorah, a woman, a female prophet, a fiery woman. She was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and called for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Did not <clears throat> the Lord, the God of Israel, command you? Go march on Mount Tabor and take 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will march towards you to draw to you by the Wadi Kishan Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. However, there will be no glory for you on the path you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Right. Thoughts, questions, what popped up? Jason, you shook your head, but now you're quiet. So I'm curious what popped up for you. Well, I'm I'm wondering what the palm of Deborah between Rama and Bethel is. I'm also wondering, like, is this the first time they're going to her, or has she been a judge for a while and now they're they're going they, they have like continued to go to her and so this is like another instance of them going to her and she's 
giving them the direction. So yeah, I'm just kind of like trying to figure out, okay, what, what's been the setting and like, yeah, what's going on here? I noticed um, the language of where you go, I will go. And so then I was curious if like this, if judges happened before the book of Ruth or if like Ruth, like, is there an influencing of the language um, from one or the other of like how the story is being told? Mm -hmm. Like for some reason, I only thought of that saying from the book of Ruth. (laughs) So I was like, oh, wait, I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. And Ruth is introduced as being during the time period of the judges. And so it really could be it. They are in some way concurrent. They could be afterwards. It doesn't really specify which part of the time period of the judges they're in, like whether it's at the end of it or the beginning or the middle, but it is listed as being sort of around. Yeah. Or like if that language is really important in relationships at that time, like there's something happening that, that that's the, that's the handshake commitment kind of language that people are using the slang if you will of the i don't know <laughs> it's interesting to think of it that way but and for all of you new to searching the sacred we did over 10 hours on the book of ruth just go back to a previous <laughs> couple of seasons <laughs> and you'll get quite a bit on everything that we are just sharing mm-hmm. but it, we won't be talking about this in those <laughs> right <laughs> So um, maybe we start with, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in verse four as compared to, um, and maybe actually, I don't know, uh, like what Dr. Will Gaffney did with the translation and also like what I have in my translation and what other people have in front of them and like what's going on there. Because my translation says, now Devorah was a prophet woman, wife of Lapidote, and she was judging Israel at the time. So that's not how you, so say it how you said it again, Lisa. Uh, she says that she is a woman, a female prophet, a fiery woman. She was judging Israel at the time. And so she, she actually tells you how she gets to that translation. So I'll just unpack the word lapidote for the moment, because either way that word is there. Um, And it means torches and sometimes metaphorically means a lightning flash. So it's that sort of, it's like a flash energy. It's a, with fiery connotation. Um, yeah. So she translates it as woman, not wife. Mm-hmm. Like first. So she's a woman of Lapidoth, but she uses that as a descriptor rather than a conjugal association. Um, Cause it's not an attested name and it has no um, patronomic. Like, so it's got no father's name to it. Um, and yep, so this is, I'm just no going to add just for, I'm going to take it out of seminary words for a minute there yep. to say, like, this is the only place this name is used. You don't see it in a genealogy. You don't see anyone else named Lapidote, which I think is then what she's saying of like, it doesn't seem like it's a name because it's nowhere else. So if it could be a name, but usually a name has some connection someplace to being a name besides one spot. So that would be part of the argument to have it not be a name. Also, from the beginning, Isha, uh, back to Genesis 2, the two, the, the Adam becomes two, an Ish and an Isha. And from the beginning, Ish and Isha can be translated man and woman or husband and wife. 
And so whenever you see Isha, you are making, you're asking the question, should this be translated like wife or woman? Interestingly enough, I think a lot of translators show a bias on this one because Ish is often translated as man instead of husband, but Isha is much more often translated wife instead of woman. Mm. But both can be either. And so it's sort of a one to kind of ask about or to notice, like, does it read differently if I have woman instead of wife? Because it is the same word, just like Isha's husband or man. So she could be the wife of a person with this name, or she could be a woman of fire. Mm. And there's good arguments to have her be called a woman of fire. Mm. Hi. Wow. It's amazing that that's like, I mean, I'm 40, not 42, I'm 42, I'm 42 years old and literally never knew that you could do that differently. And, and it's not like it drastically changes the entire story, but I, I think so often women of the Bible have been like, and, and I think our modern culture and the patriarchy does this where it's like, you need a covering, you need like a, a you need like something to validate the woman. And it, it's it got to be some man somewhere to like validate the standing of this woman to be listened to. And, and with, and, and, and when that is your, when that is the, the, the air you breathe, then when you read a passage like Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel, you just not like, you don't even have to think it, but it's just there that like, Oh, she's got this like husband. And that's part of what gives her place or meaning or, but if you were to read Deborah, a prophet, a woman of fire was judging Israel. I mean, that's a totally different framing. Um, like I said, I don't, it doesn't really change everything that comes next or whatever, but I think it, it it allows Deborah to stand on her own in a way that, um, gosh, it just feels so much better. Mm. Which I think, I mean, I even just like a moment ago, I was just Google searching like a list of the the judges of the of the Bible because I was. It's hard sometimes to pick out those verses and sometimes Google searches help because you know someone somewhere has written that list. But the first thing that popped up refused to have Deborah stand alone as a judge. It said Deborah slash Barack. Right. Um, and I was like, what in the world? Barack, like as you read this, he's never listed as a judge here, but it's that same concept of can we let Deborah stand on her own? And to what extent can we let her stand on her own? And even as we as we as it says, the phrasing of more like she was judging Israel at that time, or people were coming to her for judgment, that also has a bit of her standing on her own. Like the community is recognizing her as a leader they want to listen to. It's not that she's appointed or like the phrasing of it has this sense of like, people are coming to her. People respect her. She is standing on her own. Can we, can we let her stand on her own? It's also, I mean, I think it's hard for us to imagine that the Bible is actually saying that, but she's actually also like military. Like she's also like, there's a, it's not just judging at the time. Like it's not just a judge sitting in a black robe, hanging out 
Like she's also like, there's a, there's another element that's happening at this time where she is actually doing military work. Like she's. Yeah. She's in charge of the strategy. Like you go here, yes. like you do like this. She's in charge of the military. Like you go here. Like, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it does get a little bit interesting and to like, you know, and it's like, and then like Cicero was, you know, uh, how, how does it put it? Like, um, then, then Deborah said to Barak up for this is the day on which the Lord has given Cicero into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Cicero and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Cicero got down from his chariot and fled away on foot while Barak pursued the chariots and the army to wherever they were going. Anyway, it's it, so like there is a level of like, okay, Deborah sends him out and then Barak is like kind of the general on the field that is going to win the battle, um, which is kind of what we like to think as the, the one in charge. But it's clearly Deborah, the one saying, you go here. I've heard from the Lord. You go here. You do this. This is what's going to happen. Make sure you do it. And there's almost kind of an assumption in the earlier verses, like verse five, where it's like, it, it it's almost like, hey, don't you know that this is what you're supposed to already be doing? Like, we've kind of already told you. Why aren't you doing it? Um, and maybe that's me reading me reading into it a little bit too much, the English translation. But I feel like she's kind of like putting her foot down a little bit. Well, and, and I think one of the things we can kind of wonder if we're reading the whole book of Judges is how Deborah is leading differently than the judges who came before her or came after her, because there's also a way, though the judges are in charge of the military or have seem to have that authority, she also actually is, a, she is not framed as a warrior judge. The others sometimes are, and there's even a play or perhaps question for us in here of like, do the judges have to be as violent as they are? Or is Deborah showing a different way? Like she has the authority to do more violence than she does. Um, and, and what is God doing there even in kind of how the story unfolds or how, how the, how the deaths happen in here, which I feel like is worth then talking about um, judge what it is to judge. So, um, because we just keep using that word, and we might have a lot of different feelings about that word in English than what we're really talking about in Hebrew when someone is a judge. So this is before the time of the kings. So um, at the end of the book of after the book of Judges is when the people are going to in First Samuel be like, we just can't take. We want to be like the other <laughs> countries. Please give us a king. They haven't at this point. It's like Joshua has conquered the promised land. And this is happening after that time period or being framed as happening after that time period. So it's after they've taken the land or taken most of the land. It is before there's a king over that land. And so the idea of judges is that it's it is an authority to help govern, but that maintains the authority of God as the actual king. And, and so the way that that then happens is there's two words in Hebrew that have, that have the word justice associated with them. One is sedek or sedekah, and the other is mishpat or shafat, um, depending on kind of whether we're noun or verb there. So when she is judging, it is the word shafat. 
And I'm using my hands in a way that I'm realizing is really unhelpful for a podcast. <laughs> um, the way that we often talk about these two words related to justice is we'll, uh, in 40 Orchards is we'll, we'll refer to this verse in Isaiah that talks about the need to have both a plumb line and a measuring line when building something. And that these two words for around justice are those two different ways of building. So the sedek or sedeka is about the plumb line. And so the plumb line, when you're building something, um, does what? Ask it as a question. Make sure you're straight up and down. Okay. Like if you're building on a hill, you need to know where, where up and down is that you can actually build something straight because gravity is consistent, even if your ground has an angle. And so you always need a plumb line to have things be straight, but then you need a measuring line and that's Shafat in order to actually make something, um, to actually be able to measure out, oh, I'm going to put 10 stones here. So I'm going to measure that out. So again, both of these words can be translated justice. The one that's a plumb line can also be translated righteousness. The one that is the measuring line can also be translated judgment. And so there's a way what we think about is that there's one is about our inner alignment with what's right and wrong or our inner alignment with what God is asking us to do. That's sedek or sedekah. Shafat is about using that alignment to do something, to make something, to build something. It's the measuring line. It's the thing that actually helps you do something with that inner alignment. If I have that inner alignment and I don't do anything with it, all I can build is a tower. I have no ability to make a house or a community. I can only make a tower if I only have a plumb line. I need the measuring line to actually live. And so these judges are given the title of Mishpat and Shafat, like that, that piece of justice is their job to help people decide my neighbor's goat died. It was kind of my fault. What do I owe my neighbor? Like those questions of, of what justice looks like in a society were being taken to Deborah. She wasn't claiming to hold the authority. She was claiming to be able to translate that inner alignment with what God wants into the outer alignment of what society needed. The lived out reality of that of that inner justice. Mm -hmm. And so that's the job of the judges or like what role they're being given is to like help people live that out, to help people kind of decide what right and wrong is when things are complicated and it's not quite written down in the Torah exactly what you do in this circumstance. That's where you go to a judge and ask for help. So that's that's Deborah's role. People are coming to her to get that help for what right and wrong looks like lived out in their life. That's what her job is as a leader is to help with that. Hey everyone, this is Jason. We're about the halfway point of this episode. And if you are not a patron of this podcast, I want to invite you to join Patreon and type searching the sacred and for a dollar a month or more you can become a patron of this podcast and get access to the afterthoughts the afterthoughts are steph lisa and myself providing a little afterthought after the episode and we want to invite you to share your afterthought as well in the comments it'd be a great place where we can hear from one another as we continue to wrestle and journey with these wonderful stories that we read in scripture And would you say that most judges' roles are pretty 
like I don't mean this to sound negative or at all, but like kind of boring, like they're just kind of helping people process and answer these, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not inconsequential to the person if they lose an animal and have to figure out how to replace it. Cause obviously that means a lot to them, but like, we're not talking about, do we go to war or do we not? Like, do we conquer this land or do we not? Like, I mean, those are big, like army type questions versus like settling a dispute between neighbors, which is a very different. So like, are judges judging all the time or are they called upon to do like the weightier, bigger kind of, this is beyond just one tribe. This is beyond just a neighborly dispute. Like judges are called upon when there's like national interest and the tribes are all going to unite to say, we got to figure out how to push back here. I don't know enough about the time period to say anything declarative. My Smart. sense that was my, wise. <laughs> my sense is that in the book of Exodus, we see everybody's coming to Moses to solve all their disputes. And we see Jethro saying to Moses, hey, you should actually set up a system where people go to each other and like and people just bring the disputes to you that they that can't be solved before you. Because that's happening in the wilderness, which is before this time period, my sense is that these judges are sort of like a Supreme Court. Like there's a lot being solved at that neighborly kind of place, but it's coming to Deborah or it's coming to that head judge when it's been tough to solve or when it does affect all of the people, when it is matters of war, when it's like, oh, as a people, how do we decide how to fight or where to fight or where to move forward or where to stop? That there's a judge who is more of that authority for those wider societal mm -hmm. things or those things that have been hard to solve by the tribal judges hmm. but that's a guess that's a conjecture <laughs> not yeah. a i'm not a time period expert <laughs> well i think that actually gets to the question that i was asking a long time ago when we first read verse four and five and whatnot is i didn't really understand like okay she's already been here she's at this place people are already coming to her like how long have they been coming well maybe maybe and this is not me speculating maybe she's been in this role for a while now and the people are crying out for the Lord to liberate them from this 20 year oppression. And instead of it being like, a, oh, let's raise up some random human from nowhere and have them be a leader. It's, you know what, we actually already have someone who's been doing some leading for quite a while and is maybe a great, um, has a great understanding of the plumb line and has really wise understanding of the measuring line. And let's lean on that person when we're in our time of greatest struggle and we need to figure out what actions need to come next because she will really help us take the right next step. Um, mm -hmm. Not because it's just random, pull someone out of the clouds and just put them in a leadership role, but because they've proven it over the course of time that they're doing this job really effectively and really meaningfully and they really do hear from God. Well, because she's also named as a prophet. So that like exactly. they, she is named as someone then if she's a prophet, people see her as someone who hears from God and she's a judge, which means they trust how she's recommending that people live. And so as they're crying out to God, are they also using their own internal wisdom to say, we're going to cry out to God and we're going to ask Deborah. That's Lisa, cool. you've been like studying stuff. Like I'm curious where you are. Are you someplace totally different? Well, I'm trying to um, place a little bit of, because it feels interesting that the passage has some place names and 
tribe names. And so like thinking about um, like what we know at the end of judges is that everybody's doing what's right in their own mind. So there's clearly some dissent. There's some things happening, but we're not, we're not in the space of like, it's still all one place. Like all the tribes are kind of together, except I don't feel like they're super united or like everybody, it feels like there's, um, I don't know. Like I was trying to figure out like who, who's who, (laughs) but it's complicated when you're in some of these things where I'm like, okay, wait, I know like the Naphtali, but like the Zebulun felt a little different for me. And so it's just trying to figure out what's like, what does it look like for the people? Like, how do you suddenly like call this whole thing together and like make it happen? Um, during the time of judges, like it feels different than kings. Like judges feel different than kings in how I think about people ruling. But wait, because the judges, it was more tribal during the time period of judges. It was, yeah. it was there was something centralized, but it wasn't as centralized as it gets during the time period of kings. So it is going to be a little bit messier for authority and communication and. They have the tabernacle. They don't have the temple. And so in the tabernacle, there's going to be a way that all the people gather a few times a year for those pilgrimage festivals still. But there's going to be lots of times where people are just living in their own spot, living their own life, separate from a centralized way of being. I think sitting under this palm is an interesting, there's a a few things. This is in verse five. My my note, I'm looking at a translation from Everett Fox. Um, and he makes a note that, um, that verse five is in contrast to verse two. So there's a commander, Sisera is the commander who sits enthroned at this place of nations versus in five, she is sitting as judge under a palm. So there's this real like difference in in what kind of power is being held where it's being held that's sort of being set up as a contrast between Sisera and Deborah and one of the ways to kind of formulate that I also get really curious about like why is it called the palm of of Deborah um and I've got, I've, I have a couple of wonderings. I'm also curious to talk about it. So one is we, the only other time we see the name Deborah is actually a nurse of Rebecca that gets buried under a tree near Bethel. So I'm curious if there's like, if there is a tree of Deborah that goes back to that book of Genesis, and this is that tree of Deborah, and she decides to sit at the tree of Deborah, she rules as Deborah, like I'm curious about that. That's listed mm-hmm. as an oak. So maybe, maybe not. But the fact that it's listed as a palm also means it's a Tamar. Um, and Tamar, it means palm tree, but it's also a name of a woman that we've seen in Genesis who is just. And so is this about it being a palm? Is this something in connection to Tamar? And like, like what is Deborah pulling on by sitting here is, is sort of is my question. Is she pulling on the story of Deborah that came before? Is she pulling on the story of Tamar that came before? Is she sitting up her own place? But again, it's very different than sitting on a throne. She seems to be trying to connect to something different with how she's leading. How did how did your reading of that verse say it, Lisa? Did it just say palm? She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. 
to me, like one of either way, whether you read it as like this tree that the nurse Deborah was buried under, or whether you read it just as a palm tree and as a place name, or whether you read it as some intentional connection to Tamar, all of that sets up Deborah to me as somebody who is not trying to be enthroned. Like that that's a place that feels very different than a palace or a chair. Like it's a, it's a tree. She's sitting by a tree. That feels like a different way of holding power from the beginning that she sits by a tree. Hmm. Yeah. I think it sounds, I mean, it, it, yeah, there's just something more like connected. Like, I don't, I can't think of the right word. It's like, if this is the person that's like prophet and judge, it feels like she's open to something outside of her. Like when you sit on a throne in like a castle that you built or like a, you know, it feels a little bit like this is all about me. Whereas like if you're sitting out in nature under a palm tree or a tree, an oak tree, and you're letting people come and ask you questions, it, it you're almost presenting like, look around. I'm not the final authority here, right? Like I'm just a part of this bigger thing that's happening. And it's not something I made. It's not something I constructed. It's not celebrating me. Like, I'm just a conduit for the thing that's happening around us. Mm. And that's a very different posture than, yeah, being on a throne, dealing out death and judgment. Which also makes it, as you said that, Jason, so Ramah can be, it's a place, but it's also can be translated if we root it, it can be translated as um, like a shrine or a high place, but like not a, not a, like of illicit worship. Um, so like to be seated there between this shrine that's not for worshiping God and Bethel, the house of God, the house of God. And she is situated in between. Mm. And it feels like that also explains kind of like the spot that she's in for having to make. Right. The place of discernment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To know that there are people who are lining up on one side or the other and how to judge in between. Yeah. I mean, these words aren't accidentally put here, right? I mean, we don't know exactly what's being drawn upon or what it's alluding to, but like the fact that it's the palm of Deborah between this and this, like, of course it's telling us something. Like you said, Steph, like at the minimum, it's telling us about her posture, about what it means to be in power. Um, and what it means to be in leadership. Um, but it could mean a whole lot more, you know, like that, that's the fun of Midrash, right? That's the fun of what we're doing is we're going to dance with it for a little while and say, well, what if, you know, what if it is connection to Tamar? What if it's connection to this nurse of Rachel? What if it's about, you know, these places of, you know, Ramah and Bethel and how does that, yeah. I mean, they're so, so fun and fascinating to dive in. Sitting between the high places and the house of God, which just to make a note about like practices of Midrash there is part of what we notice. Part of why we notice those things is because we've come to notice how often the place names aren't given. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it doesn't seem to be a priority of the Hebrew scriptures to always tell us all of the details that we value in the modern world. It doesn't always tell us time periods. It doesn't always tell us lineage. It doesn't always tell us place names. So when it does, 
we pay a little extra attention to why they'd want us to know that. Why? What are the authors pointing out here? Is it on the mystical level of what these mean? Is it on a place name level where it is it both? But we're just paying attention because it names it and it doesn't always name it. And so what could be in that naming? Which feels like that's also true of how Deborah is described because there are very few places in the Bible, if any, that describe someone the way that Deborah is described. Mm-hmm. Like we're in this really interesting territory that feels like this is a, it is really framing up what's happening, mm-hmm. which happens to be centered around Deborah and her role, what she does. Let's let's talk about her name for a minute. So Deborah um, can go back to um, Deborah. <laughs> Surprise, surprise, that sounds a lot like, which means bee, as in like like a, a bumblebee, a swarm, a, like a flying insect. And as we know, all Hebrew words end up rooted in a verb. So if we go back further than the word bee, we get rooted in the word debar, which debar is to speak, to um, to talk, to it can be to put to flight as well. That's why it would be connected to the word for bumblebee. But we hear it most often, like mid. We talk in these studies about how midbar is the word for wilderness, word for wilderness, and it's rooted in the word daber, which means to speak, um, because the wilderness is a place where God speaks. And we have here this prophet and judge whose name is rooted in the word to speak. That is also unique amongst the prophets to have it be rooted. Like there's a certain emphasis that name perhaps carries of like what her words, the weight of her words, that she carries a name about words. And at the same time, we can wonder about the bumblebee connection. Like what is a, what's a bumblebee like? What's a bumblebee do? What does it mean to kind of root her name in both places? The idea of be and the idea of to speak. Which I feel like that whole speaking thing, we haven't talked about it yet, but like Judges 5 is a some some words that, well, it says Deborah and Barak. I'm not sure how much Barak is doing here, but maybe they're both using these words. And so like that wordsmithing. Right, that she's going to have in the book of Judges, it's going to be unique to have someone have a whole psalm or like it's kind of a song, psalms, words that spoken. That is unique to Deborah. And she's the one whose name means to speak. And she's the only judge. I believe she's the only judge who's also named to be a prophet. The others, the others are just judges. She's both. And so what is she carrying uniquely forward in the story? Right, because like her the way that she prophesies is not it's not like god said go do this like she speaks and people assume and understand that she's a prophet mm-hmm. so there's like <laughs> she's either been really good at prophecy for a long time and everybody just takes it as her word or there's something special about how she speaks that people trust that that is that she is bringing a message from God. I also love that in verse six, when she sends for Barak, she says to him, has not the living presence, the God of Israel already charged you? Like, it's a little bit like, why are you asking me? Like, 
you have a job to do that you haven't done. Why haven't you done it? She's got a different sort of accountability voice there, which is a different way to be a prophet than like, I have a new word for you. It's more like, or that like God only speaks through her. Like she's not centering herself either. (laughs) Oh yeah. Right. How she's she's using that power. power. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's like a meta thing happening in this. Cause like you said, when you look up, the list of all the of all the judges deborah's like listed differently like she's a prophet not just a judge she's a woman not a man she is under a tree not a throne she seems to be doing this for a long period of time she's not raised up out of nowhere like a gideon um that I'm I'm wondering, and I have not done a deep study on this, but I'm wondering if like part of what we're supposed to get is that there's something like unique among the judges about Deborah that should enlighten us to what God is trying to say. And and we've been missing it because we just want judges to be like strong, tough warriors. Because that's how they all seem to be. And and yet here's one who is going to speak, who's going to be humble. Here's one who is just, is just different. Like, and I'm wondering if we've missed the whole point of this book, like the entire book, because we haven't emphasized Deborah enough, but mm-hmm. instead we've gotten like fixated on like, the toughness of Samson and the courageousness of Gideon and the whatever, whatever. And it's like, well, maybe we should have been talking about Deborah all along. Like, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where this story was for 42 years of my life. That's all. (laughs) Well, and I think in some ways she's, I, I still actually would credit her as a warrior. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that away. I would just think that our, the way that we define what it means to be a warrior probably lacks some imagination of yeah like some of the fiercest people i know are not because they have a like a that they can bench press 500 pounds or like yeah. I, <laughs> high kick over your head whatever i there's right. a lot but like language is actually like our words actually can be fierce weapons um which, and maybe I, that, yeah. that connects into her name being B, like carrying both the idea of B and the idea of words in her name, that like a B is a different kind of strength. It does. A sting of a B can take down someone quite large if if it's the right sting or if it like it, that stings can be quite painful. It's not just a size that makes someone a warrior. But I also think about the communal aspect of bees. That like the way that they lead and the way that they're warriors is together. The fact that Barack wants to go with her, the fact that she names that it's going to be a woman who takes down Sisera, but it's not her, it's JL who takes down Sisera. There's a there's a way that she's positioning herself as a part of something and using her power communally, which does remind me of bees. Right. And the fact that it's a woman that can see another woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there is something in I just don't feel like there's a ton of prophecy that's like 
a woman's going to do this. (laughs) I just don't feel like I heard that story very often. Uh Which we didn't, I mean, JL's to come. We didn't read any of her story in here, but JL is, comes up in verse 17, that Sisera flees on foot to the tent of JL, the wife of Heber the Kenanite, or Kenite. And um, Jason was laughing about that one. Oh, he sounds like a sadist. Want to want to tell everybody what you were laughing about that JL does? <laughs> well, yeah. For anyone that's not read this before, I mean, she takes a tent peg and a hammer, and she hammers it right through the temple of his skull into the ground. And so the 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 NRSV is like, um took a temp peg and hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the temp peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness and he died as if a nail going through your temple into the ground wouldn't kill you. Let's just point it out that, and he died. Yeah. No kidding. I also again, Again, (laughs) not for five-year-olds, but maybe a teenager would find this to be like reinvigorating for their faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's huh okay <laughs> what what lisa i there's a um there's a mug that talks about that being biblical womanhood because sometimes uh-huh. we get, there's like a there's a there's a way of framing up women and this chapter in particular is a very interesting chapter to look at like what how how limiting our stories and our teaching and have like actually set up missing mm-hmm. that it's not it's not just so simple and letting women have complex stories powerful stories leadership being a linchpin um, being the ones that actually propagate violence. That's not always for the men. Like that's, and we know that in our lived experiences as well. Like it is not simply just men. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out if I say this, if it, um, not all violence is bad. I'm wrestling with that a little bit. I, I would love to be in a world where drastic change can happen because we came together and sat at a table and communicated. And that is not what happens in the world. So I don't know if it's like Pollyanna-ish to hope for it. Like, I don't know. Like it feels there's a wrestle for me there where I can see um, I think about um, some of the women that I have worked with that are in prison because they have um, killed a partner who was abusive. And um, that's, it's complex. It's complicated. Um, do I want anybody to kill anybody? No. And what happens when you're in fear for your life or fear for your children? Or Well, what I mean, it, I think that's an appropriate comparison here is to say 
they, the entire nation of Israel was oppressed by Sisera and his army for 20 years and all of these 900 chariots. And in the end, the way that this goes down when Deborah is judge has limited loss of life among those children of Israel. And in part, it's because the JL took out Sisera. Like, because like Barak's army that he goes with isn't big enough to fight 900 chariots. And it's only from a couple tribes. Like there is a saving of a lot of lives in the way this goes down as compared to the way it could have gone down. And so you do have this wrestle with what to do. Like you don't want to glorify JL's violence on the one hand, but on the other hand, through taking out Sisera, she saved many lives. And so what does it mean to uplift her? And in fact, in the song of Deborah, Um, In verse 24 of chapter five, I just noticed this when I was looking at JL, whose name means mountain goat, by the way. And in the mountain goat, and the way that she's a mountain goat, you see her give Sisera milk, but then also be violent. Like it's an interesting thing to be mountain goat, but it says, may she be blessed among women. JL, the wife of Heber the Kenite, among women in tents, may she be blessed. Water he asked for, milk she gave, and a bowl for the valiant she brought near cream. Her hand to the peg she stretched out, her right hand to the workman's pounder. She pounded Sisera, smashed his head, she shattered and passed it through his temple. Like, no one reads this alongside Proverbs 31. (laughs) (laughs) Of like, a woman making clothes, she'll be blessed. But, But it says in the Bible, blessed among women should be Jael who did this. And so can we hold a complex picture of womanhood, of leadership, of strength? Well, and how does, how does your verse 31 end, Steph? How does, where, what? The end of verse 31, the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter says, So perish all your enemies, O living presence, but let those who love you be like the emergence of the sun in its might, and the land was quiet for 40 years. And I think we can also say this isn't the last we're going to ever see of the Canaanites. So like, I mean, this isn't the end of the Canaanite regime or country or nation. And suddenly they're never heard from again. Or, And so there may be a story in Canaan that's similar to this one, except used as fodder for, you know, them rising up again. And so... Or am I way off on that? I think say more about what you mean. Well, I, I, I think we maybe rightfully are saying the violence that we're seeing here is like, you know, save lives or, or was justified to some degree. But it at the same time, it could also be something that instigated more violence down the road. And that violence is i mean violence doesn't ever seem to end things Mm -hmm. it it sometimes it pushes things back and we call it peace and we call it rest but the story of judges that this is going to keep happening and so i i i'm all for celebrating jl but we can't pretend like there weren't ramifications to this to this violence or potential ramifications. Um, 
and and, that, and that's not to say that a different choice should have been made. Like, um, you, you know, I mean, this is the this is the struggle of being human and being a follower of a seemingly pacifist Jesus who says to turn the other cheek and to pray for your enemies. It a, a Christ that goes to the cross is that well what do you do you know this this is the question my son asked me right like dad i know you say we shouldn't be violent but what what are you going to do if someone comes in our house you know like how do i answer that question right with the integrity of my faith while also the pleading look on my son's face of like are you going to save me or are you going to let someone harm me because you won't do anything you know and and i think that's where and this I, that this is where I like turn to Bonhoeffer and go, I'm going to do what I got to do. And then I'll plead forgiveness. Like I'll beg forgiveness for the rest of my life if I need to. Like, and I kind of wonder if that's like a mentality we can bring to a story like this is to say, yeah, it would have been really great if they could have sat down at a table and like hash this out and figured out what peace in the, in the East would have been like, except for it wasn't. And, and so violence was what happened. And and we can learn from that too, somehow. Um, I don't know. So I, I, I wrestle, you know, I, I made the joke about like, this is a great story to get kids interested, <laughs> which is terrible. Um, which says more about how I think about teenagers than I think about uh, pacifism. But um, but I do wrestle with it. Like, are well, we I think it's, it, you know? It allows it, what we're yeah. doing here, I think just allows it to be complex. So there's right. a, there's a lot of back and forth power struggle between the Canaanites and the Israelites in this book and beyond. And in the beginning of what we read today, the Canaanites were in power and they had these 900 iron chariots and they were oppressing the people of Israel. And now the people of Israel rose up through Deborah and Jael and Barak and through that rise of up had peace for 40 years. But now the Canaanites, the Canaanites are going to come back and they're going to be the ones in power. And we're going to see that back and forth. And we can wrestle with the violence of it. We can wrestle with if, you know, if the right two leaders had popped up at the right time, could there have been a peaceful solution? <laughs> um, but when there's not a peaceful solution and you're trying to live in that time period, how do you live? Like those questions are complex. I just, I just read a book on World War II that I loved the nightingale and funny. Oh my gosh. So good. It was about women living in occupied France. And I thought a lot, like, what would I do if a Nazi was living in my house? What would I do? That is a complex question. I can call myself a pacifist all day long because I, because I live in a position of power where I don't have to actually wrestle with any of those things. It's hard wrestles. I don't, I don't call myself a pacifist. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because I think that, um, like sometimes our lived experiences influence how we mm -hmm. interpret things, how we see things, how we come to decisions. And so for me, I, like my mom was married to someone who was physically abusive in high school. And, um, in lots of ways, I saw aftermath. I didn't see the actual thing. Like, um, and then there was a time when I did see it and it was the most terrifying experience of my life to date and called the police. And really, I mean, I did have this imagination that like the police come in and they take care of it and they protect you and everybody's safe. And um, 
it turns out like it was during a time when you'd take a guy for a walk around the block and then let him cool off. Mm. And in some ways it takes the interaction of having like to have an actual interaction to understand that like, Oh, this don't work the way that I thought it worked. Um, like the most dangerous time for a woman leaving a domestic violent relationship is leaving. Like that's it. That's, that's where um, they're killed. So I like, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, like violence does beget violence. That cycle is terrible to try to break. And when I like, that's when that language of like, turn the other cheek. And like having God show up, those are the moments where I'm like, well, yeah, where was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's, that works until it don't work until you're in that space where you're like, um, man, that didn't work. So I think like that's what happens why I, when you're out of cheeks. Yeah. Well, right. When, when the, che- when you keep getting beat, like that's not like, um, and I like, I'm like, he can't possibly have meant that. It's like, I, so I say all that not to try to like kill the conversation. Cause I, that sometimes is a conversation killer to like put out your personal lived experience and nobody's going to be like, well, should be pacifist at that point. But I say that because there's this, there's a complexity to everyone's, like we bring that complexity into reading the text wherever we're from. And we bring that same complexity into how we see systems of power. Mm-hmm. because ultimately those things are about power power over another human mm-hmm. and some people do not know how to let go of power how they actually are relying on it what fear does and all of those like all those spaces so i am recognizing that as i like as i read the story i am holding both the people that i care for deeply who are incarcerated and who don't have second chances and people who have been in violent systems and don't have the responses or care that they need. Like, Lisa, I don't think I that start. kills the conversation. I think that's a great way to close the conversation and to say there is a complexity to this story because it contains violence. And can we allow that complexity to sit and wrestle with how our lived experience intersects with the text and how it affects how we read it and how we see God and how we want to live out our faith in the midst of systems of oppression and power that still exist today. And can we take this story forward and can we wrestle with it? And can we look for the Debras to guide us in the midst of those complexities? This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40, orchards.org. 
Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by Three Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.